This is a verse from uh, an early text, early Buddhist text called The Fundamental Verses of the Middle Way by a monk named Nagarjuna. The Dharma taught by the Buddhas relies on two truths, ambiguous truths of the world and truths of sublime meaning. Those who do not understand the difference between these two truths cannot understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teachings. So this is what I want to speak about tonight, just in case that's not completely clear. (laughs) So what is the meaning of this verse? It may not be immediately obvious, but I hope to give a little bit of a flavor of it because it really captures a, a fundamental teaching of all Buddhist schools. This is a teaching that we find in um, all the different uh, traditions, all the different lineages of Buddhism in some form or another, which is this idea of two levels or two layers of truth, what Nagarjuna calls the ambiguous truths of the world and then the truths of sublime meaning. So it's very fundamental to what we're doing here, this idea of the two truths. These are often referred to uh, in more ordinary, ordinary language as relative truth and absolute truth. So there's this idea that as human beings, we're multidimensional. Our lives are multifaceted. They play out on different levels of reality, sometimes at the same time. And one way of looking at what we're doing here is that we're learning to recognize and connect with those different levels in our own experience. So not as a philosophical exercise, not as an intellectual exercise, but to really look into the truth of our experience and see how it plays out in a very tangible, in a very immediate and practical way. The level of relative reality, uh, as with everything, (laughs) there's a word for this in in Pali, it's called panyati, panyati, relative reality. And this is what Nargajuna calls the ambiguous truths of the world. This is, a, this is another one of those Pali terms that's difficult to translate it. Um, so it may, might be called relative reality, meaning that everything within it is relative. Or we sometimes call it conventional reality, everyday reality, reality ordinary reality, uh, sometimes consensual reality. That's a good term for it. It's kind of like it's the version of reality that we all agree to agree on. It's a place where we meet our common ground. So these are all different names for this one level of reality, pointing to to somewhat different facets of it. The term that I find most helpful for thinking about it is conceptual reality, because that term really points to what this level of reality is made up of. It's made up of concepts. It's made up of ideas. So it's what you might call our conceptual model of the world, which includes all of our ideas about what things are and what they do and how they're related And really, we construct the whole of this level of reality. What we're used to thinking of as our life and our world out of our ideas, starting from those the tiniest little building blocks, little bits and pieces of concept that we learned when we're very young, and then we put them together into more sophisticated labels and ideas, and, and as we grow older, we develop more views and opinions, more sophisticated ideas about the world, until there's really layer after layer after layer of concepts, ideas, making up our understanding of what's going on here. So I'm me, you're you, I'm talking, you're listening, Uh, it's the evening, it's uh, 2016, if we can remember that. (laughs) We're here at IMS in Massachusetts, in the Dharma Hall, on the earth, you know, all of that, that huge conceptual framework. This is relative reality, and it's vast. So even if we just start from that place of of what's happening in this very moment, we could go on and on uh, enumerating the vast array of concepts that are active in our minds. And this is going on all of the time, whenever we're tuned into this ordinary, consensual, conceptual, relative level of reality. So these are the ambiguous truths of the world. And this is why they're sometimes called relative, relative truths. Because we come up against all the time as we move through life that concepts are fluid. They are really relative. 
they, how they form and change depends on all sorts of factors. So since we each have a unique mind and a unique history, we all end up with a completely unique conceptual framework, completely unique to us and our experience in the world. For the most part, these different conceptual frameworks that we all have overlap enough that we can get by. You know, there's enough common ground for the most part, although certainly not always, that we can talk to each other about what's going on, we can collaborate on projects, we can do what we need to do in the world on this level. But we also see all the time how we run into problems due to the diversity of our different concepts, our different frameworks. People have different ideas, people have different views, different opinions. And everyone really has their own unique view or interpretation of what's going on at any given time. So even those people that we have very similar worldviews with, you know, maybe our closest friends, uh, maybe our closest family, if we're lucky, (laughs) that we have very similar viewpoints with, you know, it's never going to be exactly the same in every little tiny detail. There will be places of divergence. And this is why if we take a group of people who are all experiencing the same event or have experienced the same event, there can be very different ideas and opinions about it, different thoughts, different reactions, different interpretations. It's been interesting uh, these last couple of days having you guys come in and talk about your experience of of the work going on in the courtyard here. (laughs) Many different views and opinions. For some people, uh, it's really challenging, really unpleasant, brings up all sorts of things that it's hard to get past. Some people really love it. They find it a great mindfulness spell, really wakes them up, much more interesting than the thing that had been going on. Some people aren't even really noticing. It's just kind of there. So just even something simple like this, we see the the diversity of of reactions, the diversity of ideas based on sometimes what we call karma, you know, all of the conditioning that we brought to that moment of hearing the the backhoe. (laughs) And we each have different ideas about what's going on just right now. So to start with, we each have a different concept of who is experiencing this right now, right? It's me, (laughs) but me is a different person for each of us who's sitting here. Then we have different ideas and opinions about each other, various others that are around us, who they are, different opinions about the environment here, about the speaker, about the talk, ideas about who's young, who's old, very relative, (laughs) depending on where we're at on the spectrum, who's attractive, who's not attractive, who's nice, who's not, Um, all sorts of different opinions. So as Nagarjuna says, it's all ambiguous. It's all relative. What's true on this level depends who you ask. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And we see that even our own ideas and opinions change over time. We pick up new ideas, we discard old ones. Our way of thinking about the world changes. It's very different now than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, however many decades we can go back. We may have seen our taste change, Our political views change, social views change, all sorts of things. Some ideas remain very fixed in our lives, but others can shift quite quickly. They can be very transient. So even our own personal conceptual framework is not a given. It's also very ambiguous, very relative, very mutable. And we see in our world, as has always been the case in human society, I would imagine, that the, the differences in worldview can be a source of a great deal of conflict. You know, all of these conflicts, all of these fights, all these wars over who has the right view, who has the right version of things. Uh, we don't need to look much further than our own domestic politics right now, <laughs> if you're an American, to see this. The, the battles over views and opinions and the holding tight to those and just all of the, the drama and the, the suffering that that creates let alone if we look around the world, at the really you know, high stakes, really devastating conflicts that are going on around, around views and opinions. And, and in all of these concepts, all of these conflicts, each of the groups and uh, actually each individual within the groups feels like they have the right view, <laughs> feels like they have the right version of conceptual reality, relative reality, the correct understanding of the situation, the correct understanding of what ought to be done. But the more that we come to understand this level of reality, this level of of ambiguous truths, 
then the more that we come to see that really no one has the right view. There is no one right view. There can't be, because it's not a level of reality on which there is any kind of uh, absolute immutable truth. It's all relative. So relative reality is inherently subjective, inherently ambiguous, inherently diverse. There is no fixed truth within it. And we see how it becomes very harmful, uh, both on the personal level, just here looking into our own minds, and on the societal level, when we believe that they are otherwise. The classic metaphor for this level of reality is that it's said to be like a mirage, or like a rainbow. So the conditions come together, a certain angle of the light, certain moisture content, um, certain materials, sand, whatever it might be, clouds, a particular viewing angle, and then the rainbow or the mirage appears. This is the classical example many of us have heard. And then when those conditions change, then the, the, the image also changes or disappears. And so it's said to be the same with all of the conceptual world's various views and opinions. They're like a mirage, very dependent on conditions. This is a very famous passage from the Samadhi Raja Sutra, another uh, very influential second century text. Know all things to be like this, a mirage, a shape in the clouds, a dream, an apparition, without essence, but with qualities that can be seen. Know all things to be like this, as the moon in a bright sky, reflected in some clear lake though to that lake the moon has never moved. Know all things to be like this, as an echo that reverberates from music, sounds, or weeping, yet in that echo is no melody. Know all things to be like this, as a magician conjures illusions of horses, oxen, carts, and other things. Nothing is as it appears." The other night, uh, Kamala mentioned the teaching that the Buddha gave to the Kalamas, which I'm going to just flesh out a little bit. This is a very influential teaching that has uh, a lot of interesting points points in it. So as she mentioned, it's said that at one time, the Buddha visited a place in northern India that was inhabited by a group of people called the Kalama. And when the Buddha arrived in their capital, the people who saw him were very inspired by his presence, as people tended to be pretty much everywhere that he went, Uh, the nobility, the radiance, the serenity of his countenance. Um, But they were also skeptical. In some ways, the Buddha's time was very much like ours today. So it was a time, a period in history, when there were a lot of social changes going on, Uh, changes in the social structures, changes in the system of government. So it was actually a time of of quite significant flux in um, that part of the world, in the Ganges Valley. There was unrest and uneasiness about a lot of the changes going on, but it was also a time of of growing prosperity as technology, agricultural technology was advancing. So people were really questioning deeply what was life about, what was the point of all this. And it's said that the Kalama were relatively prosperous. It's thought that they lived in an area around modern-day New Delhi, which is actually a quite um, uh, benign climate. It's a good climate for agriculture and for just for human life in general. So uh, the the Kalama were relatively prosperous. They had a lively uh, commerce, a lot of natural resources, and as tends to happen, no shortage of spiritual teachers visiting their area, (laughs) looking for support, trying to gain followers. Things haven't really changed too much. (laughs) So as the Buddha walked through their town, some of the people approached him and and they said to him quite frankly, Sir, we have have had many spiritual teachers visit our town, and each one has been able to propound his teachings in an excellent, very believable way. Equally, though, every one of these teachers has denied and negated the teachings of every other teacher. Now we are totally confused. We do not know whom to believe. So this can also sound <laughs> very familiar. Um, it's, 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 quite, it's interesting. It's a quite similar climate that we live in, right? Where we have this, this plethora as modern Westerners of not only kind of our, what you might say, our indigenous religions out of the Western tradition, but you know, traditions from the spiritual uh, lineages of pretty much everywhere in the world that are available to us here. 
these days, and how do we know what to do? How do we know which path to follow? And the Buddha's response was very interesting. So he didn't just say, well, of course you should believe me, and here's why. He didn't take that approach. Instead, he pointed to the inherently unreliable and ambiguous nature of ideas and concepts. So he said, never believe any spiritual teaching because it's repeatedly recited, or because it's written down in the scriptures, or because it's been handed down from teacher to disciple, or because everybody around you believes it, or because it has metaphysical qualities, or because it agrees with what you believe anyway, or because you can rationalize it. Don't believe it because it's a viewpoint that you need to defend, and don't believe it because the teacher is a reputable person, or because the teacher says it is so. So the Buddha, you know, as Kamala mentioned, is saying very explicitly here that we shouldn't rely on conceptual truths, basically, for our understanding of reality. We shouldn't look to other people's versions in particular, other people's teachings, other people's assertions about what's true for our own understanding. But actually the Buddha goes even further than that if we pay attention to the nuances of this teaching. So he's, in addition to that, he's saying that we shouldn't even rely on our own ideas and our own views either, that we shouldn't trust our own version of conceptual reality any more than anyone else's. This is actually quite radical. So if we look at that list of what not to trust, about half of it talks about you know, not just swallowing somebody else's version of conceptual reality that they're pitching to us. So things we hear from others, things we read in books, things that are passed down through, tradi- through tradition, things that are kind of in popular culture, popular belief, or things that are coming from someone we think is a reliable authority, a convincing authority. But then the other half of the list lists unreliable sources of truth coming out of our own minds, <laughs> coming out of our own philosophizing, pondering, thinking our own reasoning, our own conjecture, our own analysis, our own imagination, the ideas and views that we arrive at because they seem reasonable or logical or probable or convenient or appealing in some way. So this is a very radical proposition that basically we need to look somewhere else entirely for truth, for an understanding of reality. Around the time of World War II, our, uh, our grandfather teacher, the great late Mahasi Sayadaw, who, was, who we've mentioned here before, that was uh, Sayadaw Upandita's teacher, and also a teacher to many uh, other important teachers, Manindra, many other teachers of the next generation. He was in a, a small town seeking refuge away from the, the conflict, which was really horrible in Burma. Some of you may be familiar with the history, but Burma is at this very strategic location, you know, between Southern Asia and, and East Asia, and uh, there, was a, there was a really brutal war. Um, the front in Burma was just really awful, a lot of human suffering, a lot of devastation, which really um, they're still trying to pull themselves out of today. And uh, so Mahasi Saida had taken refuge in a small village, but it was still relatively close to some of the larger towns, the strategic places where there's a lot of fighting going on. And it said that he could look out from his little hut across the river and hear the fighter planes going overhead and see the bombs dropping on the nearby towns. And as he was there, he, his, his response to the suffering, his response to the situation there was to sit down and write an, a, a thousand-page scholarly text on mindfulness meditation. <laughs> Which it's, it's a, if, if you see the book, it's amazing to imagine that he could have produced this work of such great lucidity and, cl- and clarity um, during that time of incredible strife. But we have to imagine that um, there was a tremendous urgency, you know, to really bring these teachings into a world, the world in a way that would actually benefit the people around him who were really suffering and really needed some solace. And actually, uh, just right now is a, is a kind of an exciting time for us because uh, Kamala and I and a group of others, um, we've been working for 15 years <laughs> to bring this book into a Western translation and to make it available in the West. It hasn't been available um, except for just small excerpts in English before. Um, it, it seems like for 15 years I've been sitting up here giving Dharma talks, talking about this book <laughs> and quoting from this book. Um, and now it's finally going to become available. It's called the the Manual of Insight uh, by Mahasi Sayadaw. 
So we're very excited about that. But this, this talk is inspired by a, a chapter that comes out of that book on just this topic, this talk, topic of relative and absolute reality, um, which was really an inspiration to me when I first encountered it. And within that chapter, there's a whole section where the Sayadaw expands out the unreliable sources of knowledge. This is one of the, the uh, part of the brilliance of his mind is he had this great mind for expanding out the teachers into ex- teachings into exhaustive detail, <laughs> leaving really no doubt about what he thought their meaning was and their, their application was. So after his uh, initial exposition um, about these unreliable sources of knowledge, he, he kind of goes to this really long list of you know, hearsay and you know, things from authority figures, all these things that are in that Kalama Sutta. And then after that, he just refers to them in this very pithy way as hearsay, etc. <laughs> that becomes kind of <laughs> the catchphrase for like every unreliable secondhand source of knowledge that we could possibly encounter. Hearsay, etc. And uh, this really made me reflect for the first time just how much of our worldview just how much of our worldview really does come from these sources. So much of our understanding of ourselves, so much of our understanding of the world is, is really secondhand. It's things that we picked up just through contact with others. It's mind-boggling just to think about our childhoods, as we all know. All of the ideas about ourselves and about life that we absorbed during that time when we were so receptive and so clueless, really from our caregivers, from our peers, from our communities, from the media. And we get to see all of this here in retreat, if we haven't encountered it already in the course of our, our path, just how entrenched those ideas are in our psyche. So we may have been told that we were smart, or that we were stupid, that we were attractive or that we were unattractive, that we were fun or that we were boring, that we were good or that we were bad, basically, in various different ways. And yet, if we reflect even just a little bit, we can see that these were just other people's opinions, their own relative, subjective view of us, based on all of their conditioning, all of their history, their relative worldview. But if we don't recognize it, or even if we we recognize it, but we don't really get it on a deep level, then we hang on to all of the secondhand ideas. And we continue to live our lives in such a way as if they were true in some real absolute way. And it becomes so clear as we look into our experience how harmful this can be and how much suffering it can generate. I can see this among the, the people that are closest to me in my, my life, my close family and friends. And we probably all know people, um, if not ourselves, that have experienced this. So I have one very dear friend who early on in his life was labeled as learning disabled. Today, this was some decades ago. Today, he'd probably get the ADHD label, attention deficit hyperactive disorder. Um, there's a real mania for labeling kids, you know, these days. So, you know, he got that label because he had certain difficulties in performing according to this very specific way that we're asked to in our school system here. He couldn't. He just couldn't achieve. He couldn't prove himself by those standards within the educational system. And he really internalized this label, of, you know, beyond just the, the challenges that he did have in learning in a different way. He internalized that label of being disabled, of being deficient in some way, of not having what it takes to succeed. And so now, even as, adult, and as, as an adult, despite having really, you know, in an objective, more objective sense, in a wider view, tremendous talents. You know, he's incredibly creative. He's wonderful with people. Um, has a lot of wonderful personality qualities. Um, he still goes through life expecting to fail. You know, he's never shaken off that label. He still goes through life with this feeling that he's not as good as everyone else. So this is a very common scenario, but there's really no objective to reality to that view that he's deficient. You know, he's, is he less worthy? Is he less valuable than anybody else? But he's internalized that so deeply that it is a, it's a real fetter. It's a real source of suffering. On the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, um, I have another friend who early on in her life was labeled as gifted, gifted and talented. <laughs> Everybody wants that label for their child, right? We have whole programs for the gifted children. <laughs> 
So she found the work that was demanded of her by the edu- educational system really easy. She was very good at taking standardized tests, really good at multiple choice questions, right? and always a measure of greatness. <laughs> <laughs> and so she just kind of sailed through her educational career, through her youth, getting lots of praise, lots of uh, awards, um, constantly being told you know, how, what a great student she was, how smart she was. And she came out of all of that with a very high opinion of herself and her own abilities and her own qualities, that she was really gifted (laughs) in some way, that she was better than other people inherently in some objective way. But then as an adult, you know, as we often find, she's continually surprised uh, and disappointed when things don't go as easily for her as they did earlier in life, when her career or her relationships don't pan out the way that she had hoped, when things don't come as, as easily to her, uh, when people don't just uh, immediately recognize her inherent superiority. <laughs> uh, and this too, this too is a source of suffering in life for her. So we could all come up with examples like this, either about ourselves or about people we know, Uh, In some way, we're all limited by early messages that we hang on to. And we can really see here just how this plays out in our own hearts and minds. We absorb and trust all of the secondhand knowledge from very early on. And if if something doesn't happen to to make us look at that and question that, then it really just may continue throughout our entire lives. So we either adopt others' ideas Uh, taking on externally imposed conceptual truths, or we reason things out for ourselves, creating internally generated conceptual truths. And so much of our understanding is gained in this way that we really usually just take it completely for granted. We don't even usually question it. So we might might start by just thinking about our identity of our gender, whether it's clear or whether it's ambiguous. How long have we known our gender, what our gender was. How did we first become aware of it? How, how did that happen? Who were the people or what were the experiences that, that shaped that identity that we have of masculinity or femininity or somewhere ambiguously in between? What if no one had ever told us that we were a girl or a boy? How would we know? Would we know? Uh, Is there any experience when we close the eyes and we feel the body and we feel the mind uh, that corresponds to femininity? You know, is there there masculine pain and feminine pain? Is there masculine breath or feminine breath? Is there any experience at all that we can find within our actual experience that corresponds to masculinity or femininity? And if we look, we can see that there's really nothing in our actual experience that communicates this this very basic aspect of our identity that we don't even usually think to question or reflect on even. And the same thing goes for all of the ideas that we have about ourselves. You know, is there there an American form of itchiness? (laughs) Is there a Canadian form of sleepiness? You know, is there an Australian form of uh, craving? (laughs) Possibly, (laughs) possibly. Uh, you know, how how old is the breath? How old is our thought? You know that these are these are ideas that we that we don't even think about questioning, and yet if we look into our actual experience, there's nothing to tell us. You know the age, the nationality, the gender, all of these very basic things. These are things that we can only know or believe about our, believe about ourselves through ideas, through concepts, through thinking about them. So all of these countless things that we know about ourselves and about others and about our world on this conceptual level of reality, things that we just take completely for granted, are really all gained through hearsay, etc., secondhand information. So what about the other side of the coin? What about this uh, somewhat intimidating-sounding, rarefied-sounding thing that we call absolute reality? What is that? And again, in Pali, there's a word for it. It's called paramata, paramata, which can be translated, I'm told, literally as true truth. Paramata, true truth. That's the truth that's really true. This is one that's real. And the English term that I like for it is empirical reality, because this, again, points to how we experience it. 
So the term empirical in science means that something can be directly observed or measured. It's something that the instruments can pick up or detect. So by saying that absolute reality is empirical, it means that this is what we can detect using our instruments, the instruments of our senses, the instrument of our mind. It's what our senses can register. These are the realities that we can know for sure and for ourselves, not through the medium of some secondhand source. So these are things that we can be completely confident about because we've known them, we've seen them, we've felt them for ourselves. And this is actually a relatively limited set of things, the nama and the rupa. (laughs) This is really all we can know. These are our senses that we have to work with, our instruments. There's the, uh, the five physical senses, everything that we experience through the body, uh, the tactile sense of the body, and then seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. And then there's everything that we can experience in the nama, in the, the, the mentality side of our experience, everything that goes on in the mind. And that's really it. It's pretty straightforward. We usually begin by trying to tune into the the physical senses, the physical level of things, because it's more straightforward. So this is a good place to start in our meditation, tuning tuning in to what is the absolute reality of the body, what's actually going on in the body. And then there's all of our mental experience, which includes everything that we can experience with our minds and which is very different from everything that we can know with our minds conceptually. This is an important distinction, and one that it it takes some time usually to be able to tease out. So the the content or the meaning, the story of our mental activity, that's within the realm of conceptual reality. But the absolute reality of our mental experience is just the direct experience of, of those very mental processes, what it feels like to think, what it feels like to remember, what the experience of our emotions actually is, rather than the stories that all of those thoughts are telling us. So there's these two ways of relating to our mental activity. We can relate through, to them through relative reality, which is our normal way of relating to mental activity, paying attention to the content of the ideas, the content of the thoughts, the stories that they're telling, and then seeing everything from within that narrative, from within that viewpoint of the concepts what we call getting drawn into the story of the thought, jumping onto the thought train. And then there's the way of relating to them through absolute reality, where where we're aware of the fact and the direct experience of thinking itself, not getting drawn into the story, not hopping into the narrative, not plunging into that, but just instead knowing what the mental activity feels like in the mind, what its qualities, what its characteristics are, what its texture is. It's like the difference between being on a raft and floating down a river with a lot of rapids. If we're on that raft, we, we're, we're along for the ride. You know, If there's a bump in the, in the river, we go over. You know, if it's smooth sailing, then we sail smoothly. It's the difference between being on that raft or being on the bank of the river and watching the raft float down the rapids. We can still see the smooth spots, the rough spots, but we're not along for the ride. We have a more stable vantage point on what's going on. And this level of absolute reality is fundamentally different from conceptual reality. It's completely unrelated to concepts. Of course, we can and we do use concepts to to describe it, like in this talk. The, The content of this talk, what you're understanding from it, is happening within the realm of conceptual reality, ordinary reality. Or in the meditation instructions, you know, when we give you instructions on how to meditate, uh, or when we repeat those instructions to ourselves, you know, we remind ourselves, okay, now I need to pay attention to the breath, there it is, maybe we put a label on it, you know, rising, falling, in, out. All of that is happening within conceptual reality. So we do use words and concepts to point our awareness towards absolute reality. But then the, absolute, the actual experience of absolute reality is not the thinking, not the talking, not the, the noting even that we use in the practice, but the actual feeling the actual experience, knowing what it is without the interpretation. There's a little bit of a parallel to this uh, separation um, 
if we think about the difference between trying to understand what a particular food tastes like by hearing somebody describe it versus actually just tasting it and knowing the flavor for ourselves. Um, there was a time a number of years ago when a friend of ours from Sri Lanka was visiting here at IMS and he'd been here for a little while and was going to be going back to Sri Lanka and he wanted to take something with him as a little you know, souvenir to hand out to his family and friends. And we were thinking about, well, what could he take, you know, that's really typically from this area, a little bit of a novelty for an Asian. Uh, We decided, oh, maple syrup. You know, this is a a quintessentially New England item. You can't get into Sri Lanka, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) So we walked down the street here uh, to our neighbor uh, down the road who who makes maple syrup. They tap tap the trees and have a sugar shack where they boil down the syrup. Um, So we were were saying, that would be a good thing to take. Um, But he had never tasted it either, and somehow he'd managed to be here for a little while without getting maple syrup. (laughs) So we walked down the road, and um, it was just at the time when the sugaring was going on. So so we went back into the sugar shack, and the the, you know, the grandfather, the family was actually there at that very moment, boiling down the syrup, you know, cooling it. Um, And we made arrangements to get a bunch of little bottles for him to take back. And um, in the course of that, it came out that, that our friend had never tasted maple syrup, which was uh, pretty amazing <laughs> to this old New Englander. What? You know, you've never tasted maple syrup? So you give him just a little cup of it and a little small cup right out of the, the vat, you know, the freshly boiled maple syrup, which I don't know if you've ever tasted, but it's, it's like a day of a realm on earth, you know. <laughs> so he takes it and he, he lifts it up to his mouth and he, a little bit goes into his mouth and it's like his eyes open up wide, you know, and his face just, his face just lit up. He was like, yeah, I'll take some of this. <laughs> so that, you know, that's, that, that's like the insight moment. It's like now, now he knew. He knew what the experience of it was, not just us trying to describe it to him. So that's really what we're trying to do here in retreat. We're trying to taste the maple syrup. <laughs> so this kind of example of, you know, getting the flavor of a food... Uh, you know, that, that makes a little bit of sense. It's not too hard for us to understand that. But the same principle really applies to all of absolute reality, all of our experience. You know, what does heat really feel like? Have we ever taken the time to really just feel heat and get that impression of what its quality actually is? Does it feel like the word heat? You know, does it feel like the label heat that we might put on it? No. It's its own experience. We have to taste it. What does joy feel like or sorrow feel like? You know, we can have the same uh, kind of separation from those experiences. We might have, we have probably many ideas about them. We may even be able to label them, but can we really taste them in the mind, what the flavor of them actually is? We can make assumptions that, oh, we know, yeah, you know, we know what goes on in the mind. We know what goes on in the body, right? You know, we know what's going on. But so often it's through this medium of the conceptual reality, all of the ideas that we formed around it, really in large part to insulate ourselves from it so that we don't feel as keenly, so that we don't suffer as much. The mind tries to protect us. So we need to to get underneath all those layers of concept that we built up so that we can really get the flavor of the experience, which may be something very different or something uh, very much more than what our ordinary way of understanding is. And most of us are so used to relating to our life through the medium of concepts that we often don't realize that we aren't really fully feeling an experience. You know, this is also something that comes up on retreat here. Like we think we've experienced heat, you know, burning, various aspects of the pain. We think we've felt the breath. We think we know what's going on in the mind. And then as we sink deeper on into the retreat, and many of you are reporting this in the the groups, all sorts of, of... all sorts of facets of the experience start to emerge that we are unaware of. We start to feel the body in this much fuller way, much much more keenly, much more sensitively. We start to see what's going on in the mind, again, much more fully, much more sensitively, um, with, with, with much greater force than we're usually open to. I came up against this early in my practice on my first long retreat here, um, where I got a bit into the retreat and I started going through a personal history review. review. Has anyone had a chance to enjoy this here <laughs> during the retreat? <laughs> this is a, a pretty universal uh, phenomena, something that comes up for us. Um, and so there were a lot of painful emotions coming up and I was trying to be diligent, use the noting, see if I could label the emotions. Um, but I could never quite seem to, to figure out 
what I was actually feeling, you know, so I'd go to put a label on emotion and I'd be like, I don't know what that is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which was very frustrating. You know, I had a lot of ideas about what I probably was feeling or should be feeling based on the content of the stories that was coming up. You know, if I, like if I'd seen my story on TV or read it in a book, I would expect the characters to have certain feelings, you know, conceptually through, through the medium of, of ideas. I had ideas about what the feelings, what feelings would make sense. But then when I went to actually look at what the, the feelings actually were within my own heart, uh, I couldn't really make them out. They weren't clear. So I kept going to my interviews and, and complaining, basically, <laughs> and I couldn't tell what was going on. It was incredibly frustrating. Um, for weeks, for weeks I was doing that. Until at one point I just gave up, which you know so often is like the pivotal point in our practice when we give up <laughs> and we stop struggling. And I stopped trying to figure out what I was feeling. You know, I got, I got this instruction, much as we give you here, is just to be clear about what's clear and don't try to be clear about what's not clear. So I was just staying with the things that were clear. Um, there was a turmoil going on in the heart, and I kind of knew that, I, I knew that. I knew there was painful things going on in the heart, even if I didn't know what they were. And that's when I started to actually be able to make the shift into, into more of being in the flow of the absolute reality actually connecting with the sensations of the emotions that were passing through the body, the, the changing texture of the mind as the various memories came through. Um, and it was still mostly unpleasant stuff. You know, that part of it didn't change. But at the same time, there's a sense of being actually in the moment, in the experience of it, tasting the maple syrup, um, in a way that had been hidden by all of my ideas and my concepts about my own emotional life, you know, really since, since I was quite young. And I didn't care anymore at that point what label needed to go on the emotions um, because I was there with it. I knew it in the moment. I knew what it was just as it was, the flavor of it. I was connecting with that, that paramata, the true truth, the real truth of the moment, which is not the concepts and doesn't need the concepts ultimately. And also, you know, so again, as so often happens, ironically, it was that, at that point that I could actually start to put a label on it. <laughs> because I wasn't putting the cart before the horse anymore, you know. I was feeling the emotion, and out of that then I was able to label it, whereas before I had been uh, really doing, trying to do it the other way around, like I'll identify it, and then once I identify it, I'll be able to feel it, right? Which is really not how it works. So one way of thinking about what we're doing here is learning to make the shift in perception uh, from relative reality to absolute reality, from our concepts and ideas about experience to connecting with the actual experience directly, just as it is. And everything that we do here is really in the service of that endeavor. So the whole retreat structure is set up so that we don't have to spend any more time in conceptual reality than is absolutely necessary. Maybe you've noticed this. So we, we come to this secluded place where we're not bombarded by media and the constant presence of language all around us, both, both written and verbal, um, that, that contains so many ideas just by its nature. We left behind our to-do lists. Um, things are arranged so we don't have to interact with each other very much and deal with that whole relative of reality, that whole relative level of reality of personalities and you know, interpersonal interaction. We only have to do a mini minimum of work Again, so that we don't have to be thinking a lot about, okay, what have I got to do? What's next up? You know, what have I got to accomplish? We don't read or write any more than is supportive to the practice. Um, so everything's been optimized so that we don't need to engage with concepts any more than is absolutely necessary. And the instructions are all designed to keep pointing us back to absolute reality, back to awareness of our actual experience. You know, can we feel a breath? as if we're taking that very first breath, that very first taste of maple syrup. Can we taste sleepiness as if, as if it was a fine wine that <laughs> we've never tasted before, savoring it, swirling it around in the mouth, really getting the taste of it, discovering all of the, the complex and, and unique flavors of actual experience, of absolute reality. And there are lots of skillful means that we can bring in to help us do this. And we spend time talking about this. 
um, ways to remind ourselves to disengage from the ideas and the concepts, to come back to the present moment, um, to connect with the more fundamental reality. But it, again, it all just comes down to being aware of the paramata, to be being aware of the true truth. What is really the truth of the moment? So if we follow the schedule as best we can, and we follow the instructions as best that we can, and we listen to our teachers as best we can, then inevitably, inevitably being here, we'll begin to connect more and more with absolute reality. Uh, There's really no way to avoid it here (laughs) because of the way that it's set up. If we're really just making a sincere effort to be aware of what's happening, then we will get more and more tuned in with our direct experience. You guys are already so much more sensitive than when you arrived here. This is really clear listening to you in the interview groups, even if it doesn't feel that way. You're so much more in your body, so much more in your experience. And we really don't need to do any more than the best we can do. The best we can do is good enough. Making this shift between the mind that is immersed in conceptual reality and the mind that's immersed in absolute reality, um, I see this a little bit like tuning uh, an old-fashioned radio, <laughs> one that actually has a knob that you have to turn. Does anybody remember those? <laughs> <You know? laughs> so there's the conceptual radio. There's a conceptual station we might think of as talk radio, you know, like all talk all the time, you know, pundits and discussion programs and, you know, yada, 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 everybody's got an opinion. That's the conceptual station. And then there's what we might think of as like, uh, kind of like the lo- local college radio station. Like they mostly just play music, you know, you hardly ever hear anybody talking on there. Um, it's just, it's, it's, uh, we don't necessarily like all of it, you know, but it's interesting. <laughs> you know, different things coming on, stuff maybe we haven't heard before. Um, and, but then if we remember those old-fashioned radios, there's also kind of a space in between the two where you get the crosstalk, you know? So it's like you're on one station, then you start to tune, and you get all the... You know? And then before you finally hit the other station. And, and this is something that we can experience and practice at times. It's a little bit uncomfortable, you know? There are times when we get stuck in that in-between place. We're not really fully in conceptual reality anymore, but we also haven't completely landed in, on the absolute station yet. So it's a little bit... It can be a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit grating. So that's just part of the practice, you know, as, as with the radio, if anybody's still got one of these, my husband's got one, it's like the more familiar you get with your particular instrument, <laughs> the better you get at tuning it, you know, like you get to get familiar with just, just the right touch, you know, you get to know where exactly they are on the dial, and then it gets, becomes, uh, there's more skill in navigating between the two. So this also happens with conceptual and relative reality as we get more skilled in looking at the mind, working with the mind, getting to know just where those stations are and how to bring them into focus. So that when we want to listen to the relative reality level, we can do that, you know? When we, need, when we need to hear what the talk radio is saying, we can do that. But then when we don't need to do that or we don't want to be doing that, we can also change the dial and tune into the absolute reality level. And it's important to remember that there's no inherent conflict between those two stations, those two different ways of seeing things. So coming back again to Nagarjuna's verse about the the two truths, you know, as human beings, our lives include both of these levels. They're both valid, they're both useful within their own spheres. They both help us in different ways to be in the world. So it's not any part of the Buddha's teachings that we need to reject conceptual reality or that we somehow drop out of conceptual reality as we become more enlightened or more awake in some way. That's not any part of the Buddhist teachings. It's not to reject conceptual reality, but just to see it in its proper light, to understand its nature, to understand its power, and understand its limitations. You know, the Buddha himself, after his enlightenment, didn't just keep sitting under the Bodhi tree, hanging out in absolute reality, you know, enjoying being in the flow of the moment until he passed away from, you know, dehydration and starvation. That wasn't what he did. He got up, you know. He, he stayed there for a while. He enjoyed it for a while, but then he got up. He took food. He drank. He thought about what he'd realized. He thought about what he'd come to understand. He put it in a, into concepts. And then he spent decades afterwards actively engaging, very actively engaging with the world of concepts, so that he could teach, he could spread the message through the, through the level of conceptual reality, which is where we share ideas with each other. 
but not being fooled by the conceptual world. That was what had changed. Not that he didn't live there anymore, but he wasn't fooled by it. I love these stories um, that we find in the canon about Mara, you know, the personification of delusion and distraction, um, coming back to visit the Buddha after his enlightenment. So Mara still came. You know, it's not like after the Buddha's enlightenment he never saw Mara again. Mara came back, according to the stories, fairly routinely. You know, he'd show up, come around, say, hey, Sid, how's it going, you know? <laughs> How about a few minutes of daydreaming, you know, just for old time's sake, you know, come on. <laughs> and the Buddha would say, oh, Mara, I see you. This was always his response. Not get out of here, man, you know? But I see you. I see what you're doing. He was not fooled anymore. That, that might be one way we might think of his enlightenment. He was no longer fooled by the stories that his mind told him. He saw everything exactly just as it was. So seeing relative and absolute reality, um, there's no inherent conflict between those. So it's not that as we learn to experience absolute reality, we start walking around saying things like, you know, this stream of psychophysical phenomena is, you know, going to the dining room. <laughs> you know, we don't do that. <laughs> We're still there in conceptual reality. So we still say, you know, I'm going to eat to get lunch. I'm breathing. I'm sitting. I'm meditating in those very con- ordinary ways. But there's the understanding as we say those things, as we think those things, that there's a deeper reality beneath them. Or to put it maybe in more compelling terms, when we say, I'm in love, or I have cancer, there's the understanding that, yes, there is a level in which those things are true. That's part of our reality. But there's also the understanding that there's a deeper level of truth that goes right along with that. And we can hold both of those at once. So I've talked quite a bit now about relative truth, about absolute truth, what they are, how we shift between them. But there's this very fundamental question that we have to consider also, which is why? (laughs) Why bother? A question which we tend to ask ourselves very often here on retreat. What am I doing here? You know, what's the point of this? So we all know and love conceptual reality. That's what's familiar. It's easy, it's where we live our lives, where we're born, where we grow up, grow old. It's where we have our relationships and our careers and our vacations and our spiritual paths and all of that. And most people live out their entire lives grounded in that level of conceptual reality without ever getting an inkling even that there's an alternative unless they happen to cross paths with the Dharma. And yet we wouldn't be here if we didn't realize on some level, even if it's not conscious, the conceptual reality uh, being stuck there has some serious flaws. Those flaws that we call dukkha, uh, which as Kamala mentioned is often, you know, uh, unfortunately translated as life is suffering. (laughs) But really it encompasses so much more, you know, that life includes suffering. So we could think of dukkha, one way of thinking about dukkha is all of the ways in which conceptual reality does not keep its promises to us. So relative reality makes so many promises, especially in our modern Western culture. It promises us the moon, right? (laughs) You know, if you just look at the commercials on TV, so many promises that we can have it all, you know, we can have pleasure and happiness and uh, never-ending youth, you know, if we play our cards right and... um, it promises us happiness on every possible front, um, even that we might, we should be able to find a way to afford it all, you know, if we live the American dream. But how much of, it, of that does it deliver? <laughs> you know, it doesn't come through on a lot of those promises. Uh, the truth is that conceptual reality is actually exhausting, right? <laughs> the endless stories, the endless dramas, the endless memories, the endless fantasies, it's not long if we take a look at it, when we do take a look at it, uh, before we're sick of it. We want to get out of it. It's oppressive. It's dukkha. And, you know, again, all of you guys come into uh, the interview groups in some way saying this in some way, shape, or form. You know, how can I get away from conceptual reality, from what my mind is doing? 
because we're stuck on that raft, right? We're stuck on the raft and we're stuck going over all the rapids, the waterfalls, you know, everything that comes along when we're stuck in that place of relative reality. And we all would just love to have, uh, you know, the magic secret, you know, the secret trick to be able to get out from all of that, to get away from all of that and get some relief. So we're here because we've realized on some level that there has to be another way and because we have faith on some level that there is another way and that this is going to help us with that. And it's precisely through tuning into absolute reality, finding a way to uh, tune into that and be able to rest there. So we will start to connect with our actual experience in more and more moments to just be able to rest in a breath to just be able to rest in hearing, to just be able to rest even in knee pain or some unpleasant experience when we're actually here in the present moment. This is very restful. And you may have seen this in your experience for shorter or longer periods, those times when we can just settle into the present moment. And even if it's something that's not particularly pleasant or something that's particularly unpleasant, there's this vitality and the sense of richness and presence and just being what is really real being with the paramata. Mostly there's nothing special going on in those, those moments. They tend to be very pedestrian. But they're, again, they're real. They're the, the reality of our lives. And so they're rich. The more we cultivate the ability to be able to rest in absolute reality, uh, the more these moments can become a place of rest and rejuvenation for us. The more we can resort to them for a well-earned break from all the hard work of being ourselves. <laughs> and that's an invaluable benefit from this practice. It's a great asset in life to have that place to take a vacation <laughs> from conceptual reality. But that's not why the Buddha went to the trouble to teach this practice. So coming back again to Nagarjuna's verse, the Dhamma taught by the Buddhas relies on two truths, ambiguous truths of the world and truths of sublime meaning. Those who do not understand the difference between these two truths cannot understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching. So we practice tuning into absolute reality so that we can realize truths of sublime meaning and understand the profound reality of the Buddha's teaching, which brings a depth of peace that goes beyond just the momentary relief of letting go of conceptual reality but instead brings a lasting relief, the relief of deeply accepting the truth of how things are and then living in harmony with that understanding. That might sound pretty lofty, but it's actually a very natural and lawful process. It unfolds very spontaneously, very automatically. It's the Dharma. It's the truth of how this human heart will unfold, will evolve, given the chance and the right conditions. So it's very freeing when we come to understand this. And we might see this more and more in our practice as we go along, how there's a a momentum that builds as we are in retreat more days, as we are on the path more years, that the practice begins to do itself. And we don't really have to make it happen. We just have to get out of the way. Just through connecting over and over and over again with paramata, with our actual experience in the present moment, just through that, through the simple practice the whole of the Dharma will reveal itself. I think I'll end with this poem by Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night, but the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds, and there was a new voice, which you slowly recognized as your own, that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. 
Let's, let's sit for a moment. We'll have some walking now and then the chanting and sitting to end the day. Then you might consider at this point in the retreat if there's a little less sleepiness, feels like there's still a little bit of energy in the mind at least, to see if we can take the day a little further and uh, perhaps if you haven't yet come into the hall or go somewhere else in the center and and have a last uh, um, period of sitting or walking to end the day.